Today's scripture reading uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be Uninformed, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue with a prayer? Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, would you illumine the sacred pages, we pray, and that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday, where we commemorate our Lord Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a humble king, marking the first day of the Holy Week, the last week of Lent, leading to, as Chun-suk announced, Good Friday this week, um, where Jesus died as our substitute and Easter Resurrection Sunday, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, Our Lord Jesus was raised from death, overcoming sin and death. Today we switch gear from going through uh, the Corinthian church's self-centered way of worshiping together, feasting without really paying attention to those around, um, causing division, and now to another topic, an important topic, to the topic of spiritual gifts. But before jumping into spiritual gifts, I want us to kind of look at the scriptures, um, what scripture teaches us briefly about how Holy Spirit operated in the Bible. I think it will help us understand spiritual gifts better. So in the Old Testament, um, Holy Spirit is involved in the creation of the world, but in addition, empowers people, whether they're judges, whether they are artisans um, working to create the tabernacle, to especially prophets, priests, and kings of Israel. Holy Spirit empowered and gifted those who led the people of Israel. Now, we know Moses was one of those especially anointed with the Spirit of God to lead the Israelites. Um, But in addition to anointing Moses with the Spirit, what God did in Numbers was something unique, yet pointing to what God's going to do. God distributed the Spirit to 70 elders, and when Joshua saw this, he was disturbed and actually told uh, Moses to just stop this, to forbid the, uh, the elders, the 70 elders, from prophesying as the Spirit fell on them. And Moses responded by saying, with that all the Lord's people were prophets. 
that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses wished that the Lord would give His Spirit to all the people, and that was his prayer. And we fast forward to the book of Joel, and where we see Joel prophesying, praying Moses' prayer, and prophesying what is to happen later, saying that there will come a time when God will pour out His Spirit to the entire people of God, where there will be no more those who have and those who have not. All of God's people will receive the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, Holy Spirit is the one who imparts new life. He's the only one who can regenerate us to make us spiritually alive because we are spiritually dead before we are given that new life through the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Holy Spirit regenerate us, Holy Spirit, as the word holy shows us, sanctifies us. He purifies us, refines us as He sets us apart for Him. Holy Spirit inspired the entire scriptures that we have. Holy Spirit illumines the scripture, and He leads us into truth, convicting us of our sin and of righteousness. It is this Holy Spirit that Jesus, is, Jesus promises that He'll send, that they will receive when He departs. This Holy Spirit who will comfort us, give us strength, and stand as our advocate before. Now, when we come to the book of Acts, we might be familiar, those of us who've uh, heard the word Pentecost, or you might have heard the Pentecostals or Pentecostalism, um, we, we see the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Um, contra- contrary to those who believe that Holy Spirit is given to some believers and not to others, in chapter 2 of Acts, we see people, Jewish people gathering all over from many different provinces around to celebrate this Old Testament festival of the Pentecost um, as they give thanks to God. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and all the Jewish believers who gathered, they began to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of the Jewish believers received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and began a new epoch for God's plan of redemption. We are familiar with probably this first Pentecost, but when you actually look at the entire book of Acts, there are three other kind of mini Pentecosts that actually plays out. So after the Pentecost, where all the, um, the Jews are received, uh, believing Jews receive the Holy Spirit, in chapter 8, we, we see the Holy Spirit given to the Samaritan believers. And in um, verses 14, it reads, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had, not, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. A couple chapters later, chapter 10, so we move from the Jews receiving Holy Spirit. We saw now the Samaritans receiving Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, we see Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, a Gentile who is a God-fearer, and had converted to Judaism, 
but still not circumcised. Here in Acts 10, we see while Peter was staying, um, still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who, were, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So in Cornelius' house, these God-fearing Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, and Peter, in response, says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So now we have these God-fearers who are seeking the Lord, also receiving the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 19, later, we see Ephesian Christians, now Gentiles, receiving Holy Spirit in similar manner. So in all four accounts, whether we're talking about Jews, we're talking about Samaritans, God-fearers, or Gentiles, they're receiving this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. All those who were present, who believed, received it, and there were distinct kind of a movement, if you notice. And if you think back, Gentiles had a big a challenge in the New Testament time because the, um, they didn't really have the full kind of standing as a member of a church in the very beginning. Well, actually, um, in the Old Testament time, Gentiles were considered aliens. They were strangers in the Old Testament covenant. Now, if you were a um, God-fearer, then you would have partial membership, but no membership was ever granted to a Samaritan and to a Gentile. But here... Uh, we see Acts chapter 1, verse 8 being realized. Um, this is what Jesus said before he ascended. He said, but you will receive, the power. You will receive power when Holy Spirit come, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Each segment is touched from Samaritan God-fearers and Gentiles, and God gives full membership to all these people as he gives, pours out his spirit on them. You see, the significance of the Pentecost is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for the whole church. It's for all people, every believer. That's what we're supposed to get when you read Book of Acts, chapter 1, and you read through what the Holy Spirit does throughout the book. Some of us, perhaps many of us, have heard, been um, seen a different aspect of Pentecostalism or charismatic movement in the past 10, 20 years. Um, and interestingly, just as the Pentecostals would make a class distinction between those who have the Holy Spirit versus those who don't. The Corinthian church was also experiencing with something similar. They're so stuck on wanting to look better than someone else. And if you remember, they always wanted to have that upper hand, say, have a better wisdom, wanted to eat in a certain way so that you, know, you elevate yourself. And now they were practicing their spirituality in a way that looked nothing different from the way of the city of Corinth and the culture that was being promulgated there. <clears throat> All the stuff that was happening in the city was just kind of brought in. And 
to think that there is a distinction of class between those who have and have not the Holy Spirit is actually going against what Moses prayed for, what Joel prophesied, and what God actualized through his Holy Spirit as we kind of skim through book of Acts. <clears throat> Apostle Paul starts chapter 12 with this now concerning, now concerning spiritual gifts. Um, he's starting a new subject. He's used this phrase before, back in chapter 7, when he mentioned um, concerning like the marriage issues that they brought to his attention earlier, and he is responding. He's writing back, and we see the same phrase concerning in, in three, three previous ways where like the whole matter of marriage, um, married, unmarried, and widowed, and previous in chapter 8 about food offered to idols. And here, after having spoken about the whole how we are to worship together as a church in partaking of communion, he shifts to talk about spiritual gifts, now concerning spiritual gifts. Because he doesn't want this issue also, like all the other previous issues, to be divisive, to cause dissension, confusion in the church as it was um, happening. Within Corinth, there were those who were practicing these ecstatic um, speaking in tongues, probably, perhaps regularly in the weekly service. And this is what the Corinthian church had also asked them because there were those who were and there were those who were confused. And um, there were those who essentially elevated this kind of ecstatic speaking in tongue as the supreme test of spirituality. Why? Perhaps because we want to be better than someone else. Again, this is nothing new. We've seen this in the way they flaunted their human wisdom, right? The way they sat and ate together before, because that's the way the world operates. And here, um, when Apostle Paul uses the word for spiritual gifts, it's an interesting word. We've seen it before. Pastor Jim mentioned it before, too. Uh, it's pneumaticon, which, depending on um, whether it's a masculine plural or neuter plural, has two different translations. And we've seen both previously in, in the book so far. So if it's a masculine plural, it refers to people of the spirit, spiritual people. And we've seen that, and that could be, it was used in a positive way too. Um, but, but here, most people will see this as a neuter plural, referring to spiritual gifts, spiritual matters. And, and that usage also comes before this. Now, Corinthians basically thought they figure out what this thing was, this spiritual matter, spiritual um, gift thing. They, they had the authority, they, they knew it, and they had this pride, they, they had this sophistication in, in, in the way they manifested these things, at least those who had it. And this is what Apostle Paul is addressing. While verse 1 starts with the word pneumaticon, referring here to spiritual gifts, fast for a couple of verses in verse 4, when Pastor Eugene preached next, um, later, um, Apostle Paul shifts the word from pneumaticon to um, kerimaton, like dealing with the word charis, grace, gift, um, focusing or shifting the emphasis from this spiritual emphasis 
really elevates oneself to the matter of giftedness. That these spiritual gifts are gifts. And Apostle Paul wanted them to know that, that there's a giver and you're simply receiving it. It's not an accident that they use the word pneumaticon, but Apostle Paul shifts it to use um, charismaton. Gifts given to enable the recipients, the believers, to ministers, to minister to others in the church. Reminds us that we are dependent as receiver, and we are to serve others with what we have received. And Apostle Paul um, continues by saying, you know, he, he does not want them to be uninformed. Uh, that word uninformed, um, you probably heard it, root for agnostic, agoneo, not to know, not to be ignorant. Um, he did not want them to be ignorant about what true spiritual gifts were about, because they really were ignorant. They thought they knew, but they weren't. And he is now going through chapters 12, 13, and 14 to correct the error, to know what it is, and how to actually utilize the gifts that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has given us and use it to edify, build a church in a loving way. Because the Corinthians, at least those who had it, were just full of pride. They felt this kind of a spiritual superiority. And every time I... I, I See that in others, and I sense that in me is the time that I have to come back to the cross because what that discloses for me, perhaps for you, is that we are not feeling fully satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ's work. When Apostle Paul says, Him crucified, we'd be fully satisfied in that versus when we find ourselves leaning to things to kind of prop ourselves up to feel a little superior to someone else. What does that really say about where we find our true, ultimate satisfaction, identity, and worth? Do we have to be better at something to find our sense of worth? Apostle Paul desired for people of God to have the right knowledge about what true spiritual gifts were and how to use it in God's way. By the end of the century, one of the saddest thing is, you know, um, so the Corinthians received two letters, at least that we have, right? First and second Corinthians. We know that Corinthians wrote to Paul, and that's why he's responding. But by the end of the first century, an another sad part is Clement, who was the bishop of Rome, and we have record of this, he, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, again, addressing the same sort of problems. Evidently, you know, these issues were not resolved even after having received the letters that Apostle Paul sent. The Corinthian church was infiltrated by this kind of non-Christian mysticism, whether Gnosticism or Neoplatonism, where they believed that to... Um, to apprehend the divine, to experience union with the divine, you have to kind of skip through the mind. And they did this through, and, and some of the way, um, religions that did this in Greek mystery religions include the disciples of Dionysus, the god of the divine, and they would engage in these kind of orgies of drunkenness and feasting. 
Um, Dionysus' other name was Bacchus, so Bacchanalia was this kind of thing. And they were participating in immoral behavior with temple prostitutes. Uh, we've talked about that before. And all of this with the rationale to this apprehend to become one with deity by silencing this rational, rational uh, barrier of reason. Um, this Dionysian frenzy, this intoxicating frenzy of dancing and prophesying, they would believe would, in leading to that ecstasy, made them have contact with the divine. And sometimes they'll lose their consciousness of themselves, and the goal is for them to become one with God. So in contrast to pagan mysticism, um, kind of similar to, I would say, Hinduism, uh, where you become one with um, Brahma or Brahman, to Buddhism, um, the goal of these pagan mysticism was oneness, where you lose yourself and get kind of absorbed by the divine or become divine in a sense. But in contrast to these pagan mysticism, and we, we see today in different Eastern um, religions and mysticism that people turn to, in Christianity, the redemption is the redemption of personal identity, redemption of the person. Why did Jesus continue to go through those doors of Jerusalem and die the death he died to overcome sin and death, to restore, redeem mankind? The ultimate goal of pagan mysticism is to lose your personal identity. But for us Christians, we've been using the word communion to be one with, not to be absorbed by, but to be with, where we experience this mystical, spiritual union with Christ and his believers by the power of his Holy Spirit. Our identity is not swallowed. We continue to have this intense personal fellowship with God. Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work, the saving work of Christ in us. He's the one who effects the mystical union with Christ, with Christ and with our brothers and sisters. Remember, the Father initiates salvation, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit, He's the one who applies it in our life. Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be reborn, regenerates us. He, he's the one who creates faith. He's the one who indwells within us, empowers us as a comforter for our sanctification and effects this mysterious union with Christ and believers. And all of this, we, are, we experience this mystical union with, with love, in love. We recite Apostles' Creed every other month, and at the end we close with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then communion of saints. That communion, um, we are talking about our relationship with Christ and relationship with one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians, 
we're so kind of enamored by the culture, the whole culture of spiritual ecstasy in their temples. And certain things are so appealing to the sinful man. When you see something so supernatural, so dramatic, there's a part that, and we're not any different now than 2,000 years ago, where these high expressions of religious experiences are deemed as not just spiritual, but because they're so powerful and spiritual, they consider them as from God. And maybe you have heard, you have known people, and maybe you might even have felt in a certain way, and we think it felt so true, it felt so right, it felt so uplifting. How could it not be of God? But that sort of logic is the very kind of logic that led the Corinthian church to where they are, that Apostle Paul is rebuking because it was a counterfeit spirit. It wasn't the real Holy Spirit. The Corinthians were kind of stuck with this kind of status stratification. They were so used to wanting to be better than someone else based on their performance, knowledge, or even charisma. They were easily impressed with talents and skills. They were obsessed with power, right? They were obsessed with comparing. They wanted to be compared and have the upper hand, even at church. D.A. Carson uses, well, he, he translates uh, spiritual gift as also grace gifts is kind of redundant because gifts are graces, but the point is to emphasize the, the giftedness. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of God's grace, something we can't earn, something we can't deserve, that are given by the owner. And as a recipient, all we can do is receive it and use it, hopefully to the, the giver's intention, Right? But I, I think, you know, Apostle Paul shifts the words from pneumaticon to charismaton intentionally to, to shift that it's not about you and you, you thinking what you know, how you're gifted, but it's about the givenness of the fact that God is the one who gave. But I think the trouble with us is we are familiar with the language of gift, and we give and receive gifts, and it doesn't have the same power the way the Corinthians probably heard it when they heard that kind of contrast. Because we live in a day and age where we give and receive gifts. And it's not so, um, it has a lot of strings. And oftentimes we, work, we live in a day where there's an economy of achievement that gives gifts. So when we receive gifts, a lot of times it's based on certain achievements. And not only that, you know, um, if someone gives you a gift and you don't like it, we either return it or we re-gift it. We don't have to receive it. And not only that, we, we, you know, we have our list of what, what we like so that people give us what we want. I mean, there are obviously cl clear, practical um, rationale for us doing that, and you know, I've done that too. But I think the way we think about and the way we relate with gift giving and receiving really mars the true givenness of grace when God gives us these spiritual gifts. 
I wonder how many of us have been impacted by thinking of what kind of gifts has God given me? Do I like it? Can I get something else instead? I mean, after all, you know, we've given gifts, and when someone doesn't reciprocate with something as a, somewhat of a same level, <clears throat> we, we feel cheated in a way, and we, we think we have a certain right to receive a certain kind of gift. That's not what we're talking about in the Scriptures. But when we hear the language of gift, spiritual gift, has our culture affected the way we think and receive God's gift for you and me? Have we been so polluted with this kind of achievement mentality that when we receive God's gift for his church, we have all these similar feelings that the Corinthians had toward the gifts that God had given them? I mean, we say, oh, I'm not gifted, or I don't know what my gifts are. Again, I think it really represents the, the sentiment that we have and the power that we think we should have in discerning those things instead of recognizing our abilities, our talents, all the gifts are truly, if we are able to do anything, are there because God truly gave us those things to use them for his glory and the edification of those around. Apostle Paul continues by saying in verse 2, after having gone through that, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, um, pagans here, ethne, in, in general, is referring to Gentiles. Now, these are Gentile Christians for the most part, but in, in this context, he's talking about when they were non-Christians, right? Because they're all Gentiles to begin with, but here the reference as being Gentiles or pagans is when they were non-Christians worshiping pagan idols. They were led astray by these mute idols. We've, we've been learning about what idolatry is, and these um, Corinthians were partaking in these worship. And the important thing that, that is revealed to us is that when they were living in their formal way, um, they were led astray by these powers. Um, led astray as a prisoner would be led astray by armed guards to prison or to execution helplessly. And that's what happens. And that's what happened to those of us when we also were uh, pagans in a sense of non-Christians when we didn't place our trust in Jesus. We were captive of Satan. We were depraved. We were blind. We, we sought answers from things that couldn't really answer us. Idol is something that's made by hand. It cannot answer us. But we have turned to things and sought answers from things and places and whatever that really had no power to answer us. In verse 3, here we see, therefore. So he's shown um, the shift of subject 
the importance of wanting them to know clearly what spiritual gifts are and how to use them for God's glory and how their formal way, they've done this, been led away this way. Now, therefore, what does he want? I want you to understand. Now, we get like two tests here, a negative test and a positive test. Um, a negative test, I want you to understand that no one speaking of the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is cursed. Jesus is accursed. And no one says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Corinthians were just really lacking discernment. You know, there are people at church in ecstatic frenzy, speaking in tongues, and perhaps saying things as Jesus is accursed, when that really is an affront to God, basically, you know, condemning Jesus' nature, character, and his work. And But people there, when they saw this, thought this is of God. But how could something like that be of God, right? It's, it's a ridiculousness of that the Corinthians didn't have such discernment to know. Just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's from God. We live in a spiritual world, and Apostle Paul says, you know, we are in a war against principalities and spiritual forces. Just because something is spiritual and even fantastic doesn't mean it's necessarily of God. And the positive test we see, as Pastor Eugene reminded us, you know, going through the 10 weeks of catechism, how do you know you're saved? Well, here, this is as basic as it gets. The positive test of knowing who Jesus is, that Jesus is Lord. It's the opposite of the negative test. And if you heard that word Lord in Greco-Roman culture, um, the first thing that you would think as a Corinthian would be, well, if Jesus is Lord, that means, guess what? Caesar is not. And later on, those are the very things that will get them killed, right? Because they refuse to say Caesar is Lord. But if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Jew, if you hear the word Lord, one of the things that will come to your mind is that the, Lord, the word Lord, kurios, is... Um, as a counterpart to Adonai, which is translated as Lord, and often that word is either used for people of high position or replaced for God's holy name that we would dare not say out loud. Um, Yahweh or Jehovah, you would say the Lord. So when a person says Jesus is Lord, it's recognizing the full divinity of Christ because that's what the Romans wanted people to really say when they would have people say, Caesar is Lord. We've been going through the 10-week catechism, and usually every week before we actually start reciting the question and answer, one of the scripture passages that we read is from Matthew 7. We, read th we went through this way back when we went through the Gospel of Matthew. So it's not just about saying with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, because wh what do we say? Um, Jesus says, many will say to me that they, when he returns, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. These are fantastic things, right? And in your name perform many miracles? It's like, didn't we do all these things? And what does Jesus say? And I will, I then will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, 
when we are, when, when Apostle Paul is talking about, or when anyone is talking about truly saying Jesus is Lord, we're not just simply saying with our lips, Jesus is Lord. It's not a, just a repetition of words, but we're talking truly about living under the Lordship of Christ. For someone who is recognizing that Jesus is the King who, have, who has come to usher a new kingdom, kingdom of God. So we're talking about recognizing Jesus as Lord for who he is, that he is the one leading my life. He is the one who I'm going to consult with because he's a master, he's the king. He's the one who gives me instructions on how to live this life, and if I break them, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to seek to obey him again the best I can as I lean on him. Truly spiritual person who has repented and received the Holy Spirit doesn't seek these kind of ecstatic experiences, doesn't want to step on someone else to feel better. They seek to be committed in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to use whatever that we've received from Him, use it lovingly to build up his body. I think one of the things that I pray for in our generation, we have so much information. You can get information about anything, anytime, but what we don't have is wisdom and discernment. Corinthians probably didn't have this kind of access to information, although they, they did think they had wisdom that others didn't have. But they didn't have true wisdom that could distinguish what was counterfeit and what was true. And remember, people only make counterfeit of things that are truly valuable, right? Like, no person is going to counterfeit like a $100 bill unless it really has a value. People don't make counterfeits of monopoly money they make counterfeits of the actual U.S. dollar because of the value that it represents. And the Satan is in the business of counterfeiting spiritual gifts. They look like, but they're not. And when church doesn't have the wisdom to discern what is from the Spirit of God versus other spiritual sources, our church gets confused, we get divided, and that was the very thing that the Corinthian church was experiencing. They were using it selfishly, just like they were eating selfishly. They were flaunting their wisdom and selfishly. Lack of judgment and discernment just reflected their immaturity. They were just so focused on these kind of supernatural effects that was visible. They didn't have the discernment to realize that what they were doing was just like what the temples were doing. Just because something works or just because you have a powerful experience does not mean it is of God. Old Testament, New Testament, we're repeatedly told about false prophets. False prophets are the ones who often had a larger crowd than the true prophet because they spoke about things that people really wanted to hear. Throughout the New Testament also, false teachers are mentioned again and again. And you and I, you, we need to have the wisdom to discern what is of God and what is not. 
It is not enough to say, well, it felt so true, it felt so right, it felt so amazing. How could this not be of God? You think the Corinthians thought any differently? The Corinthians perverted almost anything that, I, like I mentioned, whether true understanding of wisdom, true understanding of communion, and now true understanding of spiritual gifts. They didn't understand the nature of spiritual gifts, that it is really a gift that they can't boast about. They don't understand the purpose and the use of these gifts that God has given, that they're not to be used so that we feel superior versus those who don't have these kind of manifestations. We live in a day where we do a lot of, and we see a lot in social media, of virtue signaling. You do something, and people see that and gives you a thumbs up or heart. In a way, what the Corinthian church was doing was kind of gift signaling. It's like, I have these gifts. See how spiritual I am. This was happening 2,000 years ago. Something similar still happens today with those who say they have certain gifts. But similar things happened even 300 years ago when Jonathan Edward was a pastor in this country. Uh, when Great Awakening was breaking out around 1730s, he was speaking, preaching, revival was breaking out. And there are certain manifestations that he also witnessed too. And he was disturbed. And he wanted to know, and he wanted people to know how to distinguish true work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, we went through a, um, 1 John. Um, Jonathan Edward also went through 1 John, especially chapter 4, to go through and taught and preached through these distinguishing mark of the work of the Holy Spirit, or Spirit of God. Um, he knew, as he, um, he was explicating through John 4.1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Augustine, way before, uttered similar words and made a distinction, just as Edward would do, about what is faith, biblical faith, trust that is based on something that's substantive in the historicity of what Christ did and what the Holy Spirit did versus this kind of credulity, that kind of blindly believing without substance, which kind of easy believism, just, just, just believe it because it feels a certain way and the experience is there and the danger of that. Any claim to spiritual power, brothers and sisters, we need to remember needs to be tested. Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth whose operation is validated through the scripture. Remember, Holy Spirit inspired these words. He illumines these words, gives us understanding and conviction. He can't go against what he inspired. So if anyone says anything that goes against the very words, then it's not from him. Edwards would warn again that these influences or um, true gifts of the Holy Spirit are often mimicked by Satan 
and leaving people vulnerable and sometimes deluded, leading to just horrible consequences. And he starts, he has negative tests too, but he starts a positive test with the very same test that Apostle Paul did here in chapter 12, verse 3. For Jonathan Edward, the true first test, whether something that you witness is of the Holy Spirit or not, is that does it exalt Jesus Christ? Does it exalt Jesus Christ? Verse 2 of chapter 4, 1 John, By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So the chief ministry of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't point to himself. He points to Christ. He elevates Christ. So if anyone speaks a gospel or preaches in a way where Holy Spirit is of the supreme, then that is not of God. Because Holy Spirit points to what Christ has done, convicts us of what the salvation that we get to receive because of what Christ has done. Brothers and sisters, as we finish out the last week of Lent, I, I hope and pray that we take the time to even dive deeper in examining our hearts in fasting and praying, hungering for his return, asking that his will be done. My hope and prayer is that um, we take the responsibility of seeking discernment seriously in our day and age. There's so many things that we see in the media, um, spiritual things, but we need to remember that, again, not all spiritual things are of God. How do we seek to stop comparing ourselves? How do we truly find our satisfaction and self-worth, not in comparing with someone, but in the sufficiency of what Christ has done? We come to the cross because we know we need to be reminded because at the heart of things, we really are not different from the Corinthians. May we look to the cross this week, find true satisfaction, true contentment in knowing the cross of Christ is sufficient. I don't have to have certain things to feel better than someone else. Because if you do, if I do, then that means i got to come to the cross again because I'm not trusting the sufficiency of Christ enough. That means the work here needs to get done even more. So would you join me as we continue to repent so that truly we would have the assurance as we turn to Christ. Let's pray.